Hello and welcome to episode 30 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria and your host. This week's episode features the long-awaited interview with Ryan Macklin. Since the recording of this episode, Ryan has taken the position of Maid's Ascension Technocracy Developer for the Onyx Path and is no longer working at Evil Hat. Before we get to Ryan's interview, I've got uh, a pre-guest guest on, Sean Nittner, who some of you may recall from episode four, and a lot more of you will remember from uh, Narrative Control and Bad Wrong Fun. Sean is running Big Bad Con this year, running from October the... Well, how about you tell him, Sean? You know more about that sort of thing than I do. Sure thing, Daniel. <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, Big Bad Con is running October 5th to the 7th in Oakland, California. It is at the Oakland Airport Hilton, right. which is um, just about a block away from the airport. So if you're traveling in, uh, it's very close. Yep. Uh, we ran Big Bad Con last year. It's a, exclusively an RPG and LARP con. Uh, right. There is an open gaming area where people can do board games, card games, etc. But everything on the roster are RPG and LARPs. And we ran it last year and had a ton of uh, indie and story games as well as uh, a fair number of mainstream as well. And uh, people had a fantastic time. So I'm really looking forward to uh, doing it again this year. Oh, it's going to be great. I've taken a look at the list of games there are running. Um, you've got some pretty big names in there. I do, I do. I was very lucky. Uh, well, luckily, uh, last year was a pretty phenomenal success. Um, many people said that it was one of the smoothest runs cons they've seen. Uh, I think that's not really my fault. I think that's really to do with uh, the way we are handling signups, which are that you it's first come, first serve. If you have a badge, then you go online, you book a game, and you're in it. There's no worrying about standing in lines when you're at the con. There's no shuffling. There's no random chance. Uh, you just sign up for whatever you want. And then if if all the games in a time slot you want to play in do happen to be full, we have games on demand as well uh, and open gaming. So there's a ton of opportunities to really game all con long. I mean, it's it's very much about gaming. We have one tiny, tiny dealer's room with a single vendor um, and uh, there's a bar that is in the adjacent building, but really people come to just game all weekend. Nice. And so when can people start signing up for their, their tag and get their games and all that sort of thing? Well, uh, if you want to buy a badge, if you want to attend, you want to buy a badge immediately, and that's because game signups happen this Saturday, uh, September 8th at noon Pacific Standard Time. Um, so by the time listeners are hearing this, it's probably right on the line that they want to uh, sign up, uh, get a badge, and then probably almost immediately game signups will be open and they can start booking games. Perfect, perfect. And so can you let us in on any of the, uh, any of the names you've got this year this year? Yeah, yeah. Well, because last year did do so well, um, I was able to entice quite a few people in uh, to come run either their games or other games they're excited about. So a couple people that I'm very, very excited about uh, are Jason Morningstar. He wrote Shabal Harry Roach, Fiasco, and it's just coming out with Durrance. Uh, Jason's going to be running in Games on Demand, and he's also running a LARP uh, called Tribunal. Um, Jason is has run a few games for me, and they've both been fantastic i mean I, I knew he was a good game author but he uh, also blew me away is that he was exceptional uh, uh gm as well 
Uh, we also have Luke Crane coming, uh, who is the author of all the burning systems. He did Burning Wheel, Burning Empires, Mouse Guard, and Free Market. And Luke is going to be running uh, a few of his new games, uh, Dungeoneers and Dragon Slayers, um, as well as a LARP called Inheritance, which is a Viking funeral LARP. And I just played in it at PAX. Right. It was awesome. I'm not a LARPer. I don't like LARPs per se, but I, I decided to jump in on this, and it was really amazing. Uh, we've also got Lenny Balsera, who you've had on the show, yep. uh, a, who was the author of Spirit of the Century and um, Justin Files. He's going to be running Fiasco. Nice. And uh, we have Ryan Macklin, uh, who is on this episode. You'll, you'll be talking to. <laughs> That's right. Um, or already talked to. As That's the case right. be. And he's going to be running both his Emerging Threats uh, game and his Myth Ender game, which are both brand which well, not brand new, but are both games he's developing. Nice. Uh, and finally, I have Daniel Hodges, uh, author of uh, Victoria. Tell me about that guy. Uh, uh, that guy's awesome. He ran a game for me at Gen Con 2011, and he seemed like such a swell fellow that I uh, invited him out to dinner, and we uh, ended up hanging out. And uh, I thought he was a cool guy at first, a cool GM at first, and then I found out that he was a, just an awesome, all-around awesome guy after that. So, uh, well, perhaps I should get him on the show. Yeah, perhaps. I, I think you might have, have him on one episode or another. But... Um, but, yeah, Daniel's going to be there running Victoria uh, Friday and uh, Sunday. Thanks very much for uh, giving us the lowdown on that, Sean. I, I thoroughly uh, can endorse Sean's uh, attention to detail and the way he's put the, the con together uh, in the past, and it, it's looking even better this year. So get online, go to bigbadcon.com. And sign up. And you should, as soon as you hear this episode, get on and, and do it. This episode's coming out basically the day when you can start sign up. So um, yeah. thanks very much for coming and filling us in again, Sean, and I look forward to seeing you uh, at the uh, start of October there. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much, Daniel. All right. Spot you, Sean. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com. And for information about the podcast as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyreadpodcast.com. This week inside the Roleplayer Studio, I have Ryan Macklin, game designer and podcaster. You're probably familiar with Ryan's work on the Dresden Files, Leverage, and a slew of indie titles. Ryan's podcast is called Masterplan, which you can find at masterplanpodcast.net, and all of Ryan's internal thought processes are externalized in his blog at ryanmacklin.com. So without further ado, hi there, Ryan. How's it going? Oh, pretty well, pretty well. Yourself? I'm not doing too badly. We've got a bit of a thunderstorm on the way here, so my... Uh, my children are getting ready to hide under their bed, and uh, the dog has uh, made itself scarce already. But uh, hopefully, it'll add a little bit of ambience or ambiance if you're uh, French inclined to the uh, to the interview. So perhaps if you I'm... can coordinate something devilish with a loud thunderclap, then that would be good for uh, ratings. You think you can do that? Well, uh, I've got a little bit of weather coming to me too, so I think that'll happen. Awesome. Well, in that case, get ready for an atmospheric. It's a shame it's not Halloween, but in any case, um, how long have you been a, ro- a role player? Um, I, well, I've been a Ryan for around 34 years. <laughs> How long have you uh, been a role player, Ryan? <laughs> I've been a role player, oh, um, I think around 17 is when I started. So, uh, so 17 years now for, you know, half of my life. Right. Um, and, but that was like tabletop role playing. I was really interested in, uh, I don't know if, if your like listeners are familiar with like, you know, old school BBS and stuff like that and stuff like Legend of the Red Dragon and all those like old. Uh, adventure games. Sure, yeah, uh, we've but, mentioned them a few times. It's come up in connection with uh, with people getting started a couple of times, but uh, yeah, I don't think um, I, I just certainly haven't heard of that one specifically. Maybe there are some people out there that uh, that played it themselves and might want to walk down memory lane. Tell me about it. Oh man, it's um, it's it's like a very faint memory, 
Uh, and the only reason I, I bring that up, partly because the, a lot of the tropes for that and uh, the classic dungeon calling are the same. Right. So, you know, I had those familiarity with the tropes. Mm. But uh, also, uh, which you also get with some of the games like uh, Keep on the Shadowfell, Keep on the Borderlands, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. There are those sense of shared experiences where people can talk about having the same experience and have conversations about it. Right. And I found that, like, you know, I would have this particular encounter in Legend of the Red Dragon, um, or LORD as it as the acronym for it, and I would have friends who would also, and we'd talk about that, and I found that sort of parallel too. So when I started playing role-playing games, uh, it was this new weird thing because it was like physical meat space and dice, and it's all, you know, your imagination. Right. But at the same time, there were like these familiarities that I could draw back from, from, you know, playing this BBS adventure games. Right. Yeah, that's, those those common touchstones, I think, are, are important. And, it, and with role-playing being such a small hobby, I mean, growing, but, but still very small comparatively, um, you know, it really irks me when I hear people um, sort of implying that somebody else is doing role-playing wrong. You know, like a, just the fact that you could talk to somebody who actually sort of gets the idea of what role-playing is, the fact that they do it differently should be, you know, largely largely incidental. And being able to talk about that, that stuff that you've, you've shared, I think, helps to bring a community uh, closer together. I will have a knife fight with people who say that somebody is role playing wrong. <laughs> I will. I, I have that, and and the other one is is when people dismiss something just as a this is not a role playing game. Right. Uh, sort of like sort of snobbery. I will. I will knife fight all those people yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah. People like to be like to be exclusive and like to be. It's kind of like you know, uh, like indie music and and stuff like that. You know, like whatever band it is that you you listen to is is already too cool for me and not fringe enough the weird clickishness of, of what goes on mm, yeah yeah. And, yeah and it seems to me that the more fringe you get the more clickish you get which just seems so bizarre because you know like as i say there are so few role players i would have thought that you know, we couldn't really afford to be exclusive but oh high school has taught us that that, that we can have clicks of one <laughs> they're not very cool clicks but you can have them the world's loneliest click eh? yeah <laughs> click for lonely people you've got friends oh so uncool. yeah yeah um, that's so that's so last year <laughs> so how did you get started in role playing and what did you play first um so uh when i was 17 i a friend of mine uh was like having like a birthday sleepover thing and he and his brothers were like huge rpg fans and i like i understood that rpgs existed in a vague sense right but you know i show up and they're like and we're gonna play a game and i'm like okay um that's cool and weird. <laughs> not, not, not the sort of the hesitance. I didn't you know, state that hesitance, but in the I'm having a lot of stuff challenged about my worldview, and I'm a teenager kind of thing. Mm, yeah, sure. Um, but um, but we played uh, GURPS Robin Hood, and I had the character made for me already, so I didn't have to deal with any of that bullshit. And so just you know playing this game, and the the GM who was like one of the GMs that I would play with for like years afterward. Uh, ran this really cool adventure that was very, you know, Robin Hoody, very, you know, Sherwood Forest, that sort of aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And I remember, like, little random things from there. I, my character took one point of damage in GURPS, and we decided that it was, like, a really cool scar in his head. Right. And, and just sort of things like that that got me into this, like, this is cool. And I started picking up books, and, and you know, not too long later, I attempted my first foray into uh, GMing. Right, uh, and it was it was, but yeah, it was. It started with GURPS, and I played GURPS for a long time after that. Right, and then what did you go to after that? Uh, so GURPS was my thing for many years, but I took a brief aside 
uh, to play uh, D&D Second Ed. Right. And that was one of the worst experiences that I've ever had role-playing. Right. But it wasn't because of D&D. It was because of the people at the table. Right. In what way? Um, they, this, well, first of all, uh, and I'm sure some people are going to, like, grin or groan or whatever. This was a chaotic evil party. Right. And with all the sort of things that happen with chaotic evil parties mm. being, you know, because they're known for being very cohesive and very welcoming. Yes. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're the most hospitable of people, right? <laughs> That's right. Yes. The, yeah. Yes. The alignment of peace. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so, uh, and of course, that means that I made a chaotic evil character too. And mm. uh, the very first encounter, uh, the GM like asked me like he like sort of paints a scene of us like at the fire at the fire at a camp or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the GM asked me, "Hey, so what are you doing?" I'm like, "There's there's a fire, right? I guess I'm warming myself by the fire because it's cold." Mm-hmm. And he rolls damage. He's like, "Some arrows hit you, rolls damage, and you're dead." And that's and that starts that starts the combat for everyone else. Awesome. <laughs> and then we sort of get to the awkward part of combat's done. What do we do with this guy who doesn't have a character anymore? And I have to convince them it's okay to play the same character again because I didn't actually play the character the first time. <laughs> we can take the same sheet, change the name, and so uh, and so I came in as the like the cousin of said character mm. and the guy had a magic my old character had a magic item and one of the pcs refused to give up the magic item and we got into a fight by which he decided that he was sick of me mouthing off and killed that character <laughs> and a few minutes later my next my, my character who was the son of the cousin comes in <laughs> nice. and like i have no beef with you let's get this adventure going and i save my magic missiles for the end to kill him <laughs> Uh, but overall, it was it was the game where I wish I had a car when I was playing then because I could have left. Right, right. It was yeah. It was it, it turned me off at D and D for many years. Wow, that's it's yeah maybe because a number of other people that um, a, a number of other interviewees have described unpleasant first role playing experiences, but maybe it's first Dungeons and Dragons experiences that are uh, that are unpleasant because you must have been fairly old by then as well. Uh, that was, uh, I was 19, I think. Right. Nin- yeah, 1920. Right. Uh, so, you know, an old man wise in his years. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you've, you, but having played a system, um, like, right. I mean, not that the system is necessarily responsible, but if you played with, with good people and, and you had, you know, good stories along the way, it must have been a real, um, an eye opener, but perhaps not in a good way for, uh, for Dungeons and Dragons there, or at least the different ways that people play role-playing games. I, I don't blame Dungeons and Dragons for that. No. Uh, because I'm sure that these guys would be assholes with any other system. Right. And I've seen people really get into story and be, um, what's the opposite of the word, dicks, uh, really cool people um, <laughs> uh, with, with, in D&D games. So yes. I, I don't, yeah, I definitely don't pin that on D&D. I did when I didn't know any better. Sure. Now I pin it on people being assholes who, uh, who frankly didn't get late enough in college. Right. And so, so how do, I mean, have you ever played in a successful chaotic evil party? I just, I have no understanding of how that could be possible. Maybe I don't look at it deeply enough, but it almost seems like chaotic evil is, is anathema to the whole idea of a, of having a, a party because they, the, the whole, the chaos thing wouldn't, wouldn't allow for cooperation or would it perhaps I'm interpreting it wrong. I, uh, as far as, as I could tell, you're not. Uh, I've only did it the one time because right. that's what they were doing, and I was jumping into their campaign for a one-shot. Right. Um, but, 
Yeah, ever since then. I, I've, I've played in games where people are very morally gray. Right. Uh, I love those games. Mm, yes. uh, I've played in games where I have effectively been the villain as a player. Right. Um, but but in a lot of in a lot of like very sort of troop style or uh, hippier games, like I I did that in a Smallville game where basically all of my motivations were I'm really the bad guy, mm. uh, so that the GM could offload the bad guy onto somebody he he knew could play the bad guy entertainingly. Right, sure, and, uh, and again that that whole uh, that social contract as well comes into it too because yeah. if you're going to play you know like chaotic evil um, people, then you really can't play the alignment to the hilt. I mean, unless you're going to do, you know, basically, basically what you did, which is, you know, just get killed repeatedly before you, uh, before you even manage to get get started. That whole idea of, you know, trying to have a, a shared and enjoyable experience sort of goes out the window. Yeah, the, there was apparently a story with the guy who killed me slash I killed was that he never had a character live through a session, <laughs> and that perhaps is telling. <laughs> and he was probably proud of it too. Yeah, he was. They, the the whole group was a bit proud of that. <laughs> Nice. Okay, so you had a bad experiences with uh, bad experience with second edition, and then what did you get into after that? Um, so we played a lot more GURPS uh, when I finally found a consistent gaming group, which was in part the first GM uh, that I played. I, like I moved away and I moved back. Uh, we were mostly a GURPS uh, thing, but we would play a lot of different uh, uh, source books in GURPS. Mm-hmm. But we'd occasionally dabble with something else. I remember playing in and utterly loving Unknown Armies. We played a little bit of Mage the Ascension. Right. We attempted Exalted at one point, but the group kind of imploded briefly around then, so we didn't actually get the schedule much. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we played some 7th C. Uh, then like a little bit later from there, uh, we started playing a lot of indie stuff, starting with like Dogs in the Vineyard and uh, the Chad and Goffler's Truth and Justice. Right. And... Donald from episode 10 was, uh, um, and we'll get to your um, game that you'd like to cause to cease to exist. He picked 7th C, um, not because he didn't like the game particularly, but what they did with the, um, with the, with the backstory, like it turned out to be aliens were, uh, were, were to blame as well. Did you, um, did you ever, uh, did you play it long enough? Was, it, was that, Price Fighter or something? Was that, I knew that that was the case or something like that was the case with White Wolf's Angle. Yes. I didn't know that was the case with Seventh C. Yeah, uh, I think Seventh C and also Mage the what is it Mage the Awakening or something like that. I like it turns out everybody's from Atlantis or something like that. I don't. I don't. Yeah, but Mage the Awakening is like very upfront about that. I think though. Yes, that's not a, for sure. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I agree entirely. Yeah, I mean, I really liked Mage the um, Mage the Ascension, and then when and I my brought brother a new version of Mage and yeah, go ahead. No, I was saying my brother. It's uh, I, I'm a big Mage fan. Mm. Uh, but yeah, and I, it sounds like you had the same reaction that I did with uh, Mage the Awakening, yeah. uh, which I, I, I liken to, I call that the uh, White Wolf High School Crush Syndrome, right? which is where, like, there's this really cool, uh, you know, gal that you have a crush on on high school, and, like, she goes off to college and sort of comes back that summer, and she seems really cool, but she's such a different person that... Whatever spark was there, yes. not, you know, was just like, sort of like, I, I think you're cool, but man, you were like really awesome <laughs> yeah. before. Um, right. and, sure. and so like, I don't think of Mage the Ascension as a bad game or the Awakening as a bad game. In fact, I mean, it, it has better mechanics, but sure. it didn't, it didn't fire me up the way Ascension did. Yeah. But, but in like Converse, I found that the other reboots, because I wasn't really a big like Masquerade fan. Right. Uh, so... 
when it went to college and came back, I'm like, hey, you're you're actually kind of interesting. Right. You know, when it came back as recreation, so I was able to to kind of like, oh, hey, you you went to college and got a tattoo. You're kind of hot uh, <laughs> with with uh, with recreation. So I and I know the people who are like big masquerade fans have the same reaction to requiem that I have with um uh with awakening. And that's a hard job too on the on the side of the developers to mm. have to deal with that. So Yeah. That's yeah. And, and you, that's uh, one of the things that I really liked about uh Mage and maybe we can we can wax philosophical about it for now. Um is like I liked that the like the mechanic is better in in awakening although I never actually got around to playing it. But I liked the looseness and the backstory of of Mage the Ascension, like that whole, like everything was, everything was possible and there was no, there was no need for um, any really strict and strong lines. I'm not sure if that was because I just didn't pay attention to that part of, of the book or I just liked the sort of the freeform nature of the magic and you didn't have this many spells, you had no spells and you went to bed, that type of, that type of thing. And I really found that a breath of fresh air plus the storyteller system as compared with what I've been p- playing previously, you know, the emphasis on, you know, on the story and also the time that you spend on the character and developing the backstory and all that sort of stuff was real, um, was a real eye opener for me when I, when I first read it. Did you have a similar experience? Yeah, I did. Uh, the, the other bit that really fired me up about, um, Ascension is the paradigm war. Yes. That if you, if you look at it, every site is a hero mm. and, uh, every side is totally fucked up and wrong. Yes. You know, like the technocracy took a really good idea way too far. Yes. But they had, well, there's also that too. Um, (laughs) Not far enough, perhaps. But, but they, they had to take it to that distance. Yes. Because, you know, they were, they were doing something to legitimately try to save the world. Mm. Uh, And now you've got, you know, so you kind of have the, it coming full circle with the traditions in that same boat. Yes. Uh, But also being this loose confederation that would bicker amongst each other. Yes. And then, so, you know, you've got this sense of like the technocracy is a unified thing. And then as you start checking out more about the technocracy and some of those supplements, like actually they're not, they just have guns pointed at each other more or less. Yes. Um, you know, it's the, it's the giant Mexican standoff mm. of, of, you know, unified mages. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, and I, so, I love that. Yeah. That, that yeah. whole um, ambiguity of who's the, who's the good guy that heavily influenced my, um, the, the backstory that I wrote for, for my game, just this idea of it all just depends on how you look at the problem as to who's who's right and who's wrong. And I think that t- to create engaging fiction where the characters are not just, you know, like I've said before, you know, there's only two things you can do with people that you meet. You're going to kill them or they're going to give you information. Those are the only two things, right? But but this idea of there being consequences and, you know, like is this person actually a bad guy? Maybe I should be thinking more carefully about what I'm doing. That was... That was really great help to um, right. sort of introduce the fuller meaning of, of role playing. Certainly, the the other bit with Mage, you sort of touch on with the whole like that it's very open as far as the magic goes. Is that we would have fun, and it's not necessarily fun for every group, but we would have fun on occasion. Stopping the game to have a metaphysical argument about whether or not one of us could do something based on our stats. Like, listen, I have life free and prime two. I can totally do this, and yes. and and. Engaging in that, as long as it wasn't done too much, was in and of itself world building. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that whole that whole idea of getting to grips with what your magic could and couldn't do, and what particular spheres would allow for certain things, was was real fodder. I, like, I was a, a part of the uh, the mage list serve mage mm-hmm. um, 
and I used to get the digests of uh, emails every day, and people were just back and forth all the time arguing about the way that uh, the way magic worked. And, and although I didn't always appreciate the arguments, just getting the opportunity to see their take on the different paradigms and and how they could make magic work was really good for you know even for in game stuff for NPCs, you know, like ways that they would um, that they would do things. So yeah, I think that mage because of its ambiguity when it came to the to the implementation of the mechanic and the way that the magic system was so open really led to a lot of really good discussions that strengthened my understanding and appreciation for the, for the system. Yeah, totally. And I, I even think about this every now and then I just wrapped up a mage, the Ascension campaign, uh, that, uh, uh, Leonard Balsera, a previous guest, uh, mentioned he was playing. I used the cortex plus system, uh, hacked around it, but was very much that same ethos. And, we had to answer a whole bunch of new questions about the world, like how does how does data work in this world? Because that's not really addressed all that strongly right. uh, in in Ascension. I actually even wrote like I like geeked about that on my blog for a bit because right. I had to answer. We had to answer that question because we had a whole bunch of technocrats who were constantly doing information magic. I'm like, right. what does information magic look like? Yes, right. Uh, um, <laughs> but with answer incidentally is correspondence. Right, um, sure. Uh, but uh, but yeah, that, that that sort of sense of of cosmos building, which yes. you can also get in. Uh, if you, I don't know if you're familiar with the game Mortal Coil by uh, Brennan Taylor, Galileo Games. No, I'm not. Tell me about it. That one, it's a it's a uh, it's a game that really centers around magical world building. Right. Uh, you you are characters who uh, do whatever sort of magic that you define it in. It's um it's a very open there's no sense of a set setting intentionally. Mm-hmm. What you do as part of your power, you have currency to actually buy true facts about the world. Right. And so I can, you know, as we're playing, I can spend one of my currency, uh, which is a bit of a precious uh, commodity, to say, um, well, since I can summon demons, something may- maybe we established beforehand, this, uh, I'm going to buy a, uh, a fact that every evil person has a demon inside of them so I can summon them. And we're like, huh, that's kind of interesting. Sure. And, and sure, in that moment, that's totally also buying an advantage for your character. Yes. But because you're establishing that as a fact, you can have these sort of you know, things uh, come into play in, in other areas and especially to bite you in the ass. Yeah, sure, like somebody summoning you because you weren't aware of this uh, somewhat evil Right, that you had, right? You know, right, like I mean, come on, you summon demons. Of course, you have a demon inside of you, dude. That's right, come yeah. on, if you look into uh, your best and all that sort of thing. Right, and so, and that game is fantastic uh, for that sense of seeing a game that is about cloud and world building. I mean, you could you could do that to like run a cyberpunk game where you don't really flesh out what it means to be in a cyberpunk world. Right. Until then, like the networks like blah, and I put a coin down to say it does, and. Right. And, and sort of like, and being a street samurai means blah, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, you could do it at a smaller scale than crazy cosmos crap. Sure. But, but that sort of thing, I dug that game because I dug doing that in games like Mage, where even though there was a very predefined IP and sense of stuff for, for there to set a platform, right. there was a lot of weird openness about the magic. And incidentally, Mage the Ascension is pretty much how we were able to figure out our magic system for Dresden. Right. Um, good. That's good. That's good to know. So you did uh, Mage, and you, you said that you took a look at, uh, at at Vampire. But did you ever play Wraith? I never played Wraith. My girlfriend played quite a bit of Wraith, but uh, that was 
the the thing about the White Wolf games back when we were playing them uh, with my groups group is that, uh, and, and I kind of I regret this, but they were really snobbish about White Wolf games in particular. Right. Uh, it was it was the we're groups players. Those White Wolf kids, ha, the Shaw. <laughs> uh, and I, I kind of get angry sometimes because if, if someone had told me that if I were to get into White Wolf LARPing, I would have gotten laid more, uh, which <laughs> they didn't tell me. I'm kind of, I, I mean, I'm not pissed now, but past me was not happy with, with that realization. Like, listen, listen, playing GURPS does not get you the ladies, my friend. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so we didn't actually get to a lot. Uh, I never actually played Vampire. Right. Uh, I, I got really intrigued by Requiem, but uh, we never actually got a group together to actually do stuff. Uh, right. well, I played Mage twice because we finally got a White Wolf player to come in who was a really awesome guy. And because he was an awesome guy, uh, my friends didn't snub him before they found out he was a White Wolf player. Oh, right. Okay, so that's was, lucky. Yeah, and actually he's like one of my best friends now. So he's like able to be like, I want to play a Mage the Ascension one-shot where you guys are technocracy. Right. And every one of us was like, Oh, you can play that side in. <laughs> uh, like, yeah, it was it was fantastic. I love the technocracy. Awesome. But yeah, no. I haven't I haven't played I haven't played Wraith or um, the. Uh, we took a look briefly at Angle, which is not in the World of Darkness, but another of that um, uh, another White Wolf uh, darky dark game. Right. So you had you, you had a, um, some indie games, uh, some um, Dogs in the Vineyard, and so on and so forth. And then, is that about the time that you got into game designing yourself, or did you sort of come to the realization that hey, you know what, I don't have to just play these games; I can write them myself. I've been a game designer since I was a kid. Right. Uh, I was. It was like around like seven years old, something like that. That uh, I lived with my grandparents, and my grandfather was not the most. Uh, engaging person so the best way for um me to get out of his hair was for him to throw me a uh a trash 80 uh basic uh, programming manual and told me to go and mess around with the computer and so i started writing my own games from an early age uh and partly because we didn't buy games uh we he just you know said go mess with stuff and what i wanted to make was games so that and i would like dabble with like board games and stuff like that the, um, I did an, an earnest attempt to make what you know I would now look at as like my GURPS heartbreaker back in 2003, 2004, right. where we were, me and a couple of friends were trying to make a really cool uh, swashbuckling special ops game, and that totally imploded. The, um, uh, it was before I'd played a lot of indie games, so my experience was very much in like the GURPS space. Right. The um, and we were starting to play a little bit of stuff like Spycraft around that time, mm-hmm. the first edition. Right. The so that I've always been into game design. The thing that I started actually becoming successful, by which I mean I finished something, right. uh, was around 2007 when I uh, published uh, a, an Ashcan, a, a playtest of of a game that totally sucked. Uh, but uh, but it was sort of my first for, foray into that was deciding to do that, and I uh, I was a and before then uh, at the end of 2006 I started a role playing game design podcast because I wanted to uh, hear other people's thoughts about role playing game design, right. uh, and at the same time be introduced to really cool people under the pretext of well I'm press so mm. please talk to me and that's right. a fantastic trick. Right, yeah, I guess back in 2006 people were like. 
Hey, what? You're going to interview me? Sure. I'll talk to you on your, what do you call it now? I had a few people who had that sort of reaction. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was, but you know, I've been a game designer for a long time and it was getting to meet a lot of the people in the, uh, well, what's sort of, I guess called now like the forge community, right. uh, physically meeting them. Yes. Uh, that, that kind of got me to deciding to be a little bit more earnest about it. Right. And, and especially as the more I got to know, uh, Fred Hicks and Rob Donahue at Evil Hat and uh, Paul Tevis and a whole bunch of other people that basically said, all right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this thing because what the hell? Right. And so what are you playing currently? I just wrapped up the Mage the Ascension Cortex Plus hat game. I'm about to wrap up a Dresden Files game, which sort of surprises me because I I was not expecting to ever play that game again. You get to that point in designing a game where you're done. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but it had been long enough, and, and some people that I met uh, here in Colorado really wanted to play it. Right. So I said, all right, let's 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 do it. Um, uh, and aside from that, uh, I'm not sure what we're going to play next. I think we might be playing some Castle Falkenstein, and, and I'll, I'll get to be a player in that. Nice. And aside from that, I... I'll sometimes just say, like, hey, let's get together on Skype or Google Hangouts and play a game. Right. Uh, so, uh, but, yeah, so that's kind of what I do. And a lot of ad hoc stuff. Right. Okay, well, I think people have got a pretty good idea where you're uh, coming from and, and where you're at uh, right now. So on with the, uh, the questions proper, I suppose. Uh, what's your favorite book or supplement other than anything that you've uh, written, of course? Unknown Armies, hands down. Why is that? Unknown Armies was the game that blew my mind out of the water. Sort of along, like, Mage the Ascension is, is number two, but Unknown Armies was this really huge mind trip for me. It was, it was the... Uh, I encountered it for Over the Edge, but I know that there's some stuff that Over the Edge sort of introduced uh, uh, in, a, in a design sense first. Right. But for me, Unknown Armies was the first time that I saw this sort of sense of build your own skill list, and give yourself really, you know, colorful name like that. Everyone had the skill of struggle, which was the uh, f- I'm going to fight a dude skill. But somebody could, you know, you know, color it to say I'm going to roll my I'm going to fight a dude skill. Uh, and other people would like color it like I'm going to roll my please don't hit me skill right. because I, I I'm really crap at this. Right. And that sense of redefining your skills uh, on a on a on a language level was like the sort of mind blowing thing of like, and that really informs my character because I am, uh, I'm not just saying I'm going to hit with broadsword. I'm going to, I'm rolling my, I'm a fuck you up son skill. Mm, right. That was, I mean, that's sort of like that, that, and that was the beginning of me realizing the utter importance of language, reinforcing uh, a sense of a, of a sort of nigh tactile nature of right. gaming. Uh, along with that, the world was this really horribly fucked up place it was a very sort of magical and sort of very, very much a postmodern magic place. But the important part of it was that it was humanocentric. Right. Everything was about people being horrible. <laughs> like it was, there wasn't like, oh, and there's a demon you can summon to like give you power. Like, no, you're just doing something horrible. That guy is cutting himself for magic. You're destroying your liver drinking for magic. It was this, the, all these, all these concepts were. Uh, and they all clashed, but in a way that was that sang like a symphony. Like yeah. the, all these all these uh, instruments were playing out of tune, but they were all playing out of tune exactly the same way. 
and it sounded awesome. Right, it almost sounds like it'd be the ideal game for your second edition Dungeons and Dragons uh, crowd. You know what? I'm not gonna think about that. <laughs> I'm, gonna let the, I'm, I'm gonna let that memory go. <laughs> <laughs> Going to the flip side of the uh, of the coin, I guess, if you could cause one game or supplement to cease to exist, what would it be? It doesn't necessarily have to mean that you think it's badly written. It could just be because it came along at a at a, at a bad time in your life, and you already have to make that association, or it's wronged you in some completely random way beyond its control. I have a very uh, unsatisfying answer to that, which is I couldn't really pick one. Uh, I mean, like, like I mean, it's a, not like there are too many, but that's too akin to book burning for me to really right. to, 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 to like say anything that I mean, there's a lot of books that I think suck and are horrible. Uh, right. I'm informed by the fact that I've experienced those. And sure. uh, and in general, it's sort of one of those things of like, uh, you know, informally, I'll be like, yeah, you don't want to buy that book, but I wouldn't want it stricken. Sure. Because every time that I've said, you know, that book sucks, I have heard somebody say, you know, and I've got something out of it. So, you know, and, and mm. so clearly it's just an, an opinion. And, you know, you learn from, from, you know, crap as much as you learn from good stuff. And I don't know, it just seems like it's, yeah, it was just sort of too, too much like, you know, the idea of book burning. Sure. I explained the whole second ed D&D thing. Mm. Uh, but I wouldn't say that I'd want second ed D&D to be gone. Uh, sure. Perhaps... Perhaps the humans involved. Um, <laughs> you but, said you weren't going to think about those guys anymore. Look at that. What? Two it, minutes. It, there we go. Two minutes. <laughs> um, it, there's a lot of bullshit mechanics that uh, I'm happy to see aren't really being repeated anymore. Sure. But, uh, and you, some of that was, how was it? Uh, I think it was 7th C did that a little bit. Mm. There was the, you could buy a background which cost you character points which made you less effective, but what it was was basically an XPC gen or an experience points generator. Right. So it's like you could be dramatically less effective in the outset for the opportunity to be effective if the game takes a long time. Right, sure. Uh, and a lot of you know bullshit like that. Anything yeah. where you have an in-game currency that can also be used for advancement, so you have that sense of like, well, I could spend this point to re-roll my dice, or I could save it so that I could get become more comp you know sure. uh, more awesome in the future so there's a lot of stupid bullshit in little things mm. or like i could die in character creation yes uh but i wouldn't you know erase a book whole cloth i mean even like the really horrible books like fatal yes. if nothing else like that's a fantastic joke that we can keep telling each other that's right, like, yes, at yeah. least our book isn't fatal <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, right, yeah. yeah. so i mean <laughs> even that so yeah yeah sure Fair enough. Sorry, so, uh, sorry, I can't, I can't burn a book, but I can talk <laughs> shit about them. <laughs> so, are there any games or supplements that you're uh, looking forward to coming out? Uh, so, uh, a couple that I've um, uh, that I helped uh, fun on Kickstarter. I help fun like I'm some sort of philanthropist. <laughs> uh, uh, Bully Pulpit's Durance, which is um, so it's a sort, sort of like you know fiasco in the other games, the GMless game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got a chance to play test it. It's basically you getting to tell the story of Space Australia, right? Which is like the 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 beginning of the of the uh, off world prison colony, and the fact that you know, n- not unlike you know our world, 
the prison colony seems like the location seems to be habitable at first, but then turns out to really not be, and all the problems that that causes. Right. And that's a fantastic uh, uh, mindfuck of a game. Mm-hmm. The other one is uh, Our Last Best Hope, which was uh, billed to me as the fiasco of disaster movies. Right. And that one, I mean, based on that sort of selling alone, I checked out the Kickstarter. I'm like, I am interested in your game. Yes, so yeah, those, it's genius, yeah. Yeah, so those two uh, I'm, I'm really excited about. And I'm sure that, you know, I will probably see stuff at Gen Con that I will not have heard of before. So in a sense, the supplement that is the Gen Con experience is also what I'm looking forward to. Right. So there are probably, if I was to ask around, there are probably a number of people that are also really looking forward to some of the things that you're producing right now. But uh being as I, uh, I haven't been as many places as I perhaps should have been in terms of researching your background, um, have you got anything yourself coming out at the moment that you've contributed to? Uh, so we've got um, – so with Evil Hat Productions, we are – Leonard Borsar and I are working on Fate Core, which uh, we're uh, – uh, yeah, we still can't give a timeline on that because uh, we have a bad luck with timelines. Right. But we are we're being mouthy about when it'll come out. So you know, follow Fred or me or Evil Hat official on Twitter, right. uh, and that'll be there. Also for Evil Hat is the Don't Hack This Game. It's the Don't Rest Your Head anthology of hacks for the game, right. which is sort of this weird concept of getting like twenty five authors to chime in on different ways to hack the game from yeah. a setting perspective, well, that's a good from idea, a yeah. from a system perspective. Mm. Like we. We haven't really seen this before. I mean, there was the yeah. Cortex Plus Hackers guy that had an open call a while sure. ago. Um, yeah, but it's but, almost yeah. like the old school, you know, science fiction anthology. Now you get all the great writers to write right. about some particular, like sh- some shared element that they must all incorporate, sort of thing, right? And 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 we the thing there was we were thinking about originally doing a GM book, right. and we didn't think we had enough content or enough like. We could write a GM book. We didn't necessarily think we had the oomph on that alone. So we're like, so it became a hacks book, and some of the articles in there happen to also be GM advice for the game. Uh, but most of them are either how to how to tweak "Don't Rest Your Head" as is for different play experience, or here's a totally different setting of space aliens in your face. Right, right. Although I don't know if we actually have that article, but <laughs> pretend we do. Um, so, so things like that. So that one, uh, I've got a whole bunch of other stuff that I can't announce yet. Uh, and I'm always being mouthy about stuff on uh, uh, sort of little projects I'm doing on my own. Uh, by the time this gets out, I'll be going back to podcasting with Master Plan. Right. Uh, at the time of this recording, this is – it's about two weeks from uh, the Kickstarter closing, so being funded. Right. And as, as part of the deal there, I'll be doing some open design stuff for some of the backers. Right. Uh, which is l- likely going to be my Emerging Threats unit game, which is my uh, take on uh, basically indie Delta Green, the idea of like the Delta Green concept of uh, of a of a mythos, not like the Cthulhu mythos, but a a mythos that is this sort of pervasive and uh, alien thing invading the world, and you have these rare people in the know who have to stop it. Right. Uh, sort of using a uh, a very hippie indie aesthetic to to that approach, sort of like Dungeon World's approach to to D and D. Not necessarily about those rules, but like about that aesthetic to it. Right, right. Well, that sounds like some things for people to look forward to. And uh, as uh, Ryan says, check him out on uh, RyanMacklin dot com to sort of get the most up to date stuff. And then, of course, Evil Hat, uh, Lenny, and, and Fred, and and Rob. Uh, so. 
If you could only be a player or a GM, which would you choose? Well, first, I'd have to stop being a designer. Right, sure. Because uh, if you're only doing one, you're not doing enough to get a good breadth of experience. But if I only had to do one, I love being a GM, but I think what I would end up doing is being a particular sort of player. Right. That that player that does not assume the GM has entire author, uh, authorial control. Right. I'm very, I'm very much that guy when I'm at the table, not at the GM, I make declarative statements Yes. and, and see like, okay, you didn't back down from that. All right. Uh, and so very much a, like I, I sort of use the, the term an alpha player. Yes. Yeah. So sure. I would, if, if I had to only choose one, like if I could only have, you know, one, one type of ice cream in my life for the rest of it, yeah. I'd be an alpha player. Right. Yeah, I, I find myself doing that sometimes, and I try to, to stop myself. You know, like I see that the GM's got a sort of like a faraway look in their eyes, and I'm thinking, it'd be really cool if this happened, so maybe I'll just try and say it and see if I can get it to stick, you know, <laughs> type, type thing. And I don't always know if that's appreciated, so I, tr- I try to keep that to myself mostly. But uh, one of the things that I sort of raised with, uh, with Lenny um, was whether he was, and he said he didn't want to anyway, but he was able to turn off his game design, a game analyst sort of part of his mind while he's playing a game so that he can sort of just get immersed in the story without looking at the cogs whirring and, and stuff like that. Do you, do you have a problem with that yourself, or can you sort of switch that on and off? Well, I can't switch that off, but I can uh, I can accept when there are flaws and just go with it. The, sure. thing that I, the thing that I can't switch off and it bugs me is the editor mind. Right. Uh, when I'm looking at something and... Uh, like the development editor, which is the one where you look at organization and flow and information presentation, not necessarily, uh, you know, little copy edit stuff, although that can, you know, drive me nuts too. But sure. I look at something and say, all right, these two paragraphs are out of order. What the fuck? Yes, um, sure. And, and people will, will end up doing that. The, uh, I was playing, it's a board game, Defenders of the Realm. Sure. And I couldn't get past the fact that they use Comic Sans as a body font because oh, it was really joking. hard to read. Oh. No, I'm not. I'm like, I want to. I want to taint stab this person. That's, am, that that's amazing. Who? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, they wouldn't have. They could have paid anybody, just about anybody on the internet. I mean, if anybody knows a font to not like, it's Comic Sans. So unless right. they're being ironic somehow. And, um, and, and like, I mean, granted, uh, and people will challenge this. I'm, there's a place for Comic Sans, and maybe as a header in certain circumstances. Certainly not in a game that's medieval themed, no. but as a body font. Sure. It was like, this is unreadable. Yes. I hope you die of something that's also unreadable. Right. That's, yeah, it's, that's... it's very abstract, I guess. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, I spent a lot of, I agonized for a long time over the, the font for my, uh, for, for my game. I, I don't know if that makes me boring or, or what it is, but I find fonts fascinating. I love the, the look of them, the way that, how different they are. And, and, but I also sometimes wonder if, you know, just like somebody who's into wine, you know, if you don't know anything about wine, then you want a glass of wine. Oh, I, I really liked having that glass of that glass of wine. Um, whereas somebody who knows is into wine, like no, it's got like you know, it's got notes of you know papaya and persimmon and all that type of carry on. It's got legs and it's got a good bouquet. And whether knowing more stuff about it allows you to appreciate it more deeply, but doesn't necessarily, you know, translate to ninety nine percent of the people that are drinking that are drinking wine out there. And I wonder whether. Know, spending all that time on fonts is actually lost on on the people that, that are reading the book. Well, yes and no, I'd say. The the nuance that you're putting in 
will not be immediately obvious to no, those people, sure. but the effects of that nuance will be subtly felt. Yes. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think that uh, that even if people don't necessarily appreciate what a genius you are for using that particular font, that sort mm-hmm. of subconscious impression that the font makes, I think, is, uh, is right. really important. And that, that idea with, yeah, so if anybody here writes anything in Comic Sans, just don't, because it kind, it's the, I mean, in my mind, and maybe you've got an analogy yourself, but in my mind, it's the... Uh, it's the font equivalent of somebody who goes, I'm so crazy. Look how crazy I am. I'm having such a crazy time. I'm just crazy out of control right now when they're exactly the opposite of that type of thing. You know, they're trying so hard to be something that they're really the opposite of that. Like that stereotype uh, in, you'll get in office sitcoms of the zany secretary yes. who is basically trying to uh, make a boring job interesting Yes, and, and to sort of uh, make themselves feel like they are an interesting person when deep down they don't feel like they are. Whether they are or not, they don't feel like they are. Yes. And you may be notice that I'm under overanalyzing things because I'm a game designer and editor. <laughs> uh, but but to, to go back to something you said, the, like being that alpha player but being shy about whether or not the GM is cool with it, mm. uh, I often will play with GMs that are both cool with it and sort of expect me to do that. Right. Like, they're like, okay, Ryan, I need you to, like, step up. I'm like, well, like, I'm not going to step up. Like, no, no, this guy's a wet blanket. I need you to help me out. So yes. I, I, I've been that guy who has been intentionally, like, sort of drafted as, like, a lieutenant mm. effectively right. yeah. for the GM. Yeah, and sure, that, sure people how to do it right type, type right. thing. Right, exactly. And uh, I was even that, like, there was a, a convention game of the Dresden Files where I sat in, and no one knew who, who I was, which is fantastic. Mm. And I sat in as a player to basically be the guy to also help explain the rules. Yes. Yeah. Uh, except when it came to magic, because it, it only, I didn't, I, the, I sort of walked away like briefly when making the magic system or when right. money was making the magic system. Right. So I didn't actually know how the magic system worked until like a few months after the game was published. Right. Yeah. I was like, I was, I was done. I was like, I'm working on my part of the book. Everyone shut up. Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, that, idea of of having sort of a seed player there i think is important in a a couple of respects one you know you've got that you know when you first start out with role playing uh if you've got a whole bunch of people and none of them have role played before just the idea of of role playing it can just can produce so many different interpretations of the rules and the way that it should that it should properly be um and it's it's really hard i think to sort of like be a a um it's really hard to get a good handle on it without without that initial seed player. And that was one of my challenges that I sort of set for myself when writing the game. I thought, do I want to write a game from first principles or do I want to write a game for people who are already role players? And, and because it was my, my first game, I thought, well, I'm going to write it from first principles because in the process of doing that, you know, it's hopefully it's going to inform some of my decisions that I make later on. But also it'll help me to get to grips with whether I've actually got something worth, worth saying or not or whether I'm just regurgitating a, a, a mixture of the various... Um, other things that I've read, but but also the idea of having you know that that seed play like you were for that Dresden Files game is showing people a way that that role playing can be and and like you mentioned with un- unknown armies, you know until you see it done a different way, it never occurs to you that it could be that way, right? And and so you know being that sort of alpha player like you say, you know just getting people to go, you know what, hey, I can't, I don't actually have to be a baby bird, I can actually bring something to the table, and the GM's actually going to enjoy that and. And incorporate it. We're going to sort of create sort of a, a better story together than than could have been created if I'm just you know reacting to everything that uh, 
that they say. So, and, and part of being a good alpha player, I think, is to give offers to other people. Like it's it's not a spotlight hog role. No. It's a uh, it's a it's an opportunity creation role. Like I'll you know I'll find some way to look at a potential opportunity and create it for someone else. Yeah. Like I mean, if if I if I pick up on someone might possibly be down with like being a love interest, like having a, like a love interest thread, I'll go there. I'm like, I was not going to go there five minutes ago. I see that opportunity. I'm going there. I'm going to hook you into this game. Yes. You know, it's going to like, that's, that's what I like doing. Mm. Um, I also do that as a GM, but uh, if I had to pick one thing, and that's also why I love GMless games like Fiasco, because that is exactly that role. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I agree. That idea of being a being an alpha player doesn't mean that you're the boss of you're the boss of everything. What it really means is like that you're going to take that opportunity to you know set people up, like you say, with the love interest or spot something about their character, or you know become vulnerable in a particular way. Like, who can help me with this difficult problem that I'm having right now? And then right. the baby bird that that hasn't you know that's just waiting for stuff to happen can sort of step up with with the skills that they perceive their their character to have or the things that they would think was cool about their character to get a chance to exhibit that. So, so yeah. Don't, uh... One of the things about being an alpha player, like in, in that sense is understanding when you need to step down from being a protagonist for a moment. Hmm. Like I, and I, this is a trick that I learned from a, a friend of mine um, was playing in a game that I ran and he, he had a point about two thirds the way through where he and I exchanged a look. We knew each other pretty well. And I'm like, and this is the point where you're accepting becoming a secondary character because you understand the flow of the game. Got mm-hmm. it. Uh, yes. And so, you know, very much the like, all right, I'm going to be a support character now. This is not going to be about me. This is going to be about the other people I'm going to prop up. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, like letting somebody else, like, like uh, it's like an ensemble cast, right? But almost like an ensemble cast where, right. where you've got a number of different films, right? And in each film, you know, there's a different different hero, there's a different different main protagonist. But absolutely, yeah, that's and again, that goes back to that social contract. Like we're all here to have fun. Like it's your turn to take the wheel. Let's you know, let's support your plays now. Right. And, and although on occasion I have told a GM that he was full of shit when he made a bad call. That's the <laughs> other side of being an alpha player. Be like, listen, motherfucker, what the fuck? Not always a good thing, but I I do speak my mind. <laughs> Yeah, you got you got to take both both Ryan's at the same time. Yes. So, have you ever had any um, bad experiences at uh, conventions? Because being part of a design team, you've probably had a lot of um, interaction with a lot of different players. And I've never experienced it myself. But somebody brought up this idea that you know, like you actually might have to stop the game and sort of step aside with one of your with one of your players who's you know being a dick in one way, one way or another. Have you ever had any of those experiences? You know, I have on occasion. And I've had uh, other times where there have been awkward things that have broken play. Like there was one time, and I've I've run back in 2010. I think I probably ran roughly 60, 70 convention games that year. Right. Uh, and and that was the top. I've I've probably run about like 400 at this point. Yeah, sure. The the some of the ones that stick out of mind are the awkward moments where uh, I had one person who went to his car during a, a, a brief uh, interlude and found his car broken into and his laptop stolen. And that basically was a really weird tense moment where we stopped playing the game. Mm. We had about an hour left and was not sure whether to proceed or not because he was, you know, calling the police and things like that. Sure. The, um, I've had people who have been uh, 
who have been assholes. Right. And depending on the situation, uh, I, sometimes I've been able to like call them out on it. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes the looks exchanged at the table with the other people who sort of understand the situation are like, all right, we're just going to ride through it and, and we're going to respect the fact that he's an asshole. So we're not, we're going to engage with him as little as possible. Um, the, I've, I've had people who have practically thrown tantrums, uh, (laughs) And, and I won. And I apparently had one guy. I let. I had a, used to run games for six players at conventions, and and I don't anymore. Uh, but I used to have one guy. Uh, I had one guy one year Gen Con SoCal that uh, I let him in my game because I happen to have an extra character sheet. But apparently the convention guy said I'm really glad because I was pretty sure that he was going to throw a, throw a tantrum if you said no. I'm like, <laughs> oh, glad to help. He wasn't. <laughs> And, and he wasn't a dick. It was a nice thing. Like I think once he actually got into a game, he, his frustrations were gone. Right. He had a good time. But uh, yeah, you get a lot of, and there there are a lot of things you can get at the table. The uh, I've also found that people will walk into a game, uh, not like the, the the one that pisses me off the most are the people that wander into a game. They don't really care what game it is. They have this sort of approach of like, well, it's a game. As if every game is the same. Thus, what I'm expecting. Thus, their expectations in my mind are like, "What are you going to play D and D? This is not D and D. Come on." Um, which means that their expect they don't care that their expectations are not going to be met. Uh, and one guy at a, at a Vegas con, he came in to do a play test of a, of a game that I'm working on. Oh, I probably should say also too that uh, my game Mythender, which is about stabbing Thor in the face, will probably be publicly free and available by the time this comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, the but he came in a playtest of that and he was like on the phone and he was doing all this stuff. It's like he was he was not there to actually engage. And I found at like I get more pissed off with the people who are there to not engage yes. than than I am with the like that's to me more disruptive yes. than the people who are engaging toxically. Yes. Oh yeah, um, for sure. Yeah. Because it is it's easy for me to deal with the toxic thing because I'm a I'm kind of a come at me bro guy. Yes. So when someone comes at me, yes, I'm there. Yes, but but that sort of like that like you're doing something completely different. I really want to challenge you right now. Mm. This is not the arena for that. Be, uh, like I will just like it 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 throws my mojo off, and uh, yeah. So but yeah, I've I've dealt with a lot of this crap. Oh man, I I, I love convention jamming. It's one of my favorite things to do, yes. especially with. Absolutely no preparation whatsoever. Yes. Um, but uh, but yeah, sometimes you you get uh, yeah, sometimes you get people. Yeah, that's right. yeah. I've I've only really got one bad. Well, I don't want to say bad, but one um, convention sort of story along those lines. I was a player rather than a GM, but there was a, a chap there, and I guess he I don't know if he made his wife and daughter come along to the to the convention, but you know he was basically just. <laughs> just basically bullying them at the table, telling them what their character should do, how they should set up, and, oh. and all that sort of thing. So I, I took it upon myself to to annoy his character as much as possible, and and I, I think I actually managed to get the pol- because I think the GM sort of realised what was going on as well. But um, so with a little bit of a help, I, I had the police 
um, arrest his character and take him away and lock him in jail for part of the game. So the uh, <laughs> so no, I'm sorry you're not there right now, so you can't say anything type type situation, which right. gave, gave his wife and daughter a chance to play. But yeah, that sort of domineering, you know, like the alpha player, but not the alpha player in the way they want to help with the story. The alpha right. players, they just want to take all of the characters from everybody else and put them in front of themselves and just decide exactly what's going to... Uh, What's I, going to happen? I don't. I don't call that guy an alpha player. I, I just call that guy a cockbite. <laughs> yeah. that, that's just a very. You know, don't want to mix terms here. Uh, I, 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 <laughs> that's I not that as, words, Ryan. Tell me what right. you really think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I did have a time playing in a game. Uh, now that you mentioned the idea of like sort of shifting to like bad times playing in a game, where I was playing in a game that uh, now a friend of mine uh, ran, but then I, I didn't really know the guy. And he had, it was me and two other dudes in this game. And those two other dudes only showed up in order to fuck with that guy. Oh, really? So I was there to, like, have an experience. And mm-hmm. they were there to have a totally different experience. Really? It never occurred to me that somebody would do that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. You, you get that sometimes. There's an interesting dynamic you get when people, when you do not know the GM and other people at the table do in the convention game. Right. Uh, on both sides, as the GM and as the player. Right. Yeah, I, I've never actually had anybody play in a convention game that I knew uh, previously. There's some people that I've stayed in contact with subsequently, but um, but yeah, it never occurred to me that somebody would actually uh, would actually do that. That's hmm. it's really that is a dick move. Um, yeah. So, yeah, uh, have you ever had to have you ever had to break up with anybody in a role playing game? You know that. Uh, yeah, I have. Oh, oh man, have I? I'm I became known as the guy who will actually make that thing happen. It's like uh, we had a we had a friend who. Uh, and this is is actually like a home group, not not at a, at a convention. No, no, sure. But yeah. We had a friend who was really disruptive, right? Uh, in the game, like we we were un, we were afraid to try any of the really cool new indie games with him because he intentionally would be an asshole because that's how he got his you know his uh, mental rocks off, if mm, you will. Mm. And we all felt bad because the reason he was in that state was because a year ago he got into a really bad car accident, died, got resuscitated, and was now a lifelong cripple. Right, right. So that was an awkward place to be in. Yes. And, th- and then he came and played a couple of my convention games, yeah. and he was a real asshole to me in front of a whole bunch of people. Like, there's When you're doing a convention game, there is a sense of authority as a GM, yes. which is not necessarily an authority to tell people what to do, but you're a confidence portrayer yes. to people who don't know you or don't know the system. Yes. And what he did was undermine that authority, which thus meant undermining a sense of group confidence. Yes. And that, like, that became a, like, that gritted on me because he did that in two games. Like, he'd be like, oh, if this was a home game, Ryan would be done now and, yeah. and other stuff. Yeah. And so when we were playing a lot, the, the time afterwards when we were, uh, I was not able to, like, the passive-aggressive snark kept yes. coming out. And so he's yes. like, what, do you have a problem with me role-playing? I'm like, Never do it at my convention game again. Finally, I actually was like declarative. He never showed up to any of our games again. Right. Uh, and we were, and everyone else in the group thanked me for being the guy who was an asshole. Yeah, well, I don't Which, think that makes you an asshole. I think it's sort of preventing somebody else being an asshole. Because I think if we we're going to round up this whole sort of segment in a, in a, in a couple of statements, and I'll, I'll volley it back to you here in a sec, but one of the most important things about a convention is that sometimes that somebody's, they've saved up for that. For the whole year, yeah, to go yeah. to this convention. That's a really good point. And they want to play, you know, five or or six games or however many games they can squeeze in in that weekend. They want to try some cool stuff, and they want to have they want to have a fun time. And then if somebody goes along, 
and is unpleasant in any of the ways that we've um, that we've mentioned. You know, like just don't uh, uh, just the idea of it just kind of makes me sad, right? Because I know that there yeah. are people that that applies. So I'm a little bit better off than that financially myself. But at the same time, when I go along, I want to have a break. I want to have a good time, and I want to come away from every game thinking, "Wow, that was cool. I met some cool people, or I did I did something cool." But people that go along and detract well, from that that fun, it's just it's not fun for the GM, but also it's of the four or five people at the table. It can really you know ruin what could be the the highlight that or something they've been looking forward to for a long time. Even if you're independently wealthy, you do not have an infinite amount of time, so you still have spent time yes. in this moment, and that moment will then color your next one. I mean, if you have a toxic a toxic experience mm. and you're about to like take lunch and then go to a next game, will that toxic experience hang over your head? Possibly. Yes. And so, yeah, no, I mean, at just period. Yeah, that 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 is total. That's just a lot of bullshit. People do that, but. That's what happens a lot at conventions because you have people who are otherwise well-meaning and would be in a uh, optimal situation, really awesome. Uh, yes. But they're tired because they've been like, "I want a game twenty-four hours, motherfucker," <laughs> um, and, or they're hungry because they had to, you know, they had to run from one thing to the next, and like, "No, nah, I'm not going to, you know, eat, eat food yeah. all eat after." All those sort of things that yeah. can happen in a in a convention environment is yeah. So yeah. I mean, like, yeah, even good people can suck. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That, one of the things that I do in, in my games, I have these things called uh, plot points in my game, which is similar to a number of other games, but I make the plot point starbursts. Um, so when anybody, <laughs> uses the, when anybody uses the plot point, they, could, they get to eat it, and that way I can hopefully stave off some of those, you know, you've right. seen a Snickers commercial with Roseanne Barr and, and uh, you know, Joe Pesci and all that for those people that haven't had a Snickers. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, just stave yeah. off those, that type of uh, douchebaggery. Um, so... When you are a GM, what sort mm-hmm. of preparation do you do? Uh, if if I am fortunate, and often I am, not a damn thing. Right. I I well, that's kind of a lie. Well, for an individual moment, practically nothing. Maybe a few notes on an in, on a single index card. It's yeah. like sort of like a, and the opening scene will be X. Yes. Uh, but all of my preparation has been in the form of playing and running convention games and home games for uh, – like particularly running convention games specifically for the last uh, – I think I started running convention games in 2003. Right. Uh, and in that, what I have prepared in my mind is a sense of uh, act structure, a sense of skeleton, uh, mastery of the various games that I'm playing. Yes. Uh, if I do in fact have mastery – so I don't prepare like a sessions of content. I prepare technique by honing them and doing them constantly. Right. What about the the setting though? Because that's one of the things that uh, if I'm when I'm running a game, that's something that I do a lot of work on. I may not necessarily put a lot of work into exactly where the story is going to go. I, I like to leave that that loose. But having a good grasp on the setting, I think, and being able to describe things in an evocative fashion, like is that is that something that uh, that you uh, that you do as well, or do you run a lot of contemporary games so we all share those common um, resources? The answer is like yes or no. There's uh, if I'm running an IP heavy game, like if I was like running Dresden, right. I have all of that to draw on, so yes. I don't really have to. I don't have to prepare except for having experience with the material. Right. When it's new stuff, sometimes I run contemporary games, so it's easy to. It's sort of it's simultaneously easy and hard because right. there are facts about the world that are sometimes inconvenient. Yes. It's like the Dresden Files game that I'm about to wrap up is set in Miami. Right. 
And when we did City Creation, we were very explicit. Only the Miami you see on television. Right. Uh, and so when we drafted everything, it was like we, we have not bothered. Look, like I think once we looked up something on Wikipedia to find, up some, find out something, right. uh, I don't know if we even bothered regarding it, but it's like one guy was curious. Yes. I also am big on, on sort of Socratic GMing where someone will say, you know, someone will ask me a question about the world. Yes. And I will turn around and say, I don't know. What is it like? I don't know. What, what kind of – what time of day? What time of year is it like? I don't know. What time of year do you think it is? Yes. It's fall. Like, and to, and like, and I'll like from there, whatever their answer is, I will yes and that shit. Like, and yeah, and the leaves are turning and you sort of have that like sort of you know, crisp autumn air. And right. also there's a troll. What do you do? You know, and then yeah. and sort of, there's a thing that I don't do. And I call this um, – I call it Jasmine bullshit because it came from a moment of play with a friend of mine right. where he spent like five minutes describing – this moment going into like all the different smells you could do. And by then I was bored. Yes. Um, because, because we had just, because the moment was not like within the pacing of the energy of the people, we should have had something more active happen at that moment because everyone's energy level was up. Yes. And then it shifted to talking a lot about how awesome Jasmine smells. Right. And so I try to avoid jasmine moments as much as possible. Right. Um, and leave that to be questions that people bring up. Sure. And and also that's a little bit like having these shared resources, right? Like the uh, I've heard people describe Charles Dickens' um, stories as being slow moving. And back in the Victorian times, when people were were writing books, um, the people that were reading them didn't have those same shared resources. So, for example, if you're going to describe Miami nowadays, the majority of people have watched CSI Miami and have got an idea of what Miami might be like. So the number number of description that's required is is significantly less than if you're going to, say, write something about Miami in a a Charles Dickens book. You know, you don't have those those same uh, shared resources. So do you think that's... You know, I have a very contentious. About? I have a very contentious uh, thing along those lines. Uh, this will not make me popular with many people, um, but I hate Tolkien. I right. hate I hate those books, and the and because when I was trying to read them, they were really slow moving, yes. and what I what I recognize from, from that you look at fiction today, is that it's because people didn't travel as much, and you don't have the History Channel. Yes, like it's it's. So you look at those books and you see that those books are partly a replacement for the sense of of travel and the sense of exploration that we get from other that we now get from other media and thus you see that the the shape of novels have changed to be less about that yes and to be more about character action and interaction yes I mean if you, it's basically like yeah it's the the sense of of and, I mean, that's why if you look at if you look at Tolkien, you can totally see that Tolkien was written in a time before you have cable. Right. Uh, but yeah, uh, speaking of shared experiences, you know, it's fantastic is Google Image Search and Flickr to like to get a sense of that's what the St. Louis you know bridge looks like in a way I can describe it like like oh that's a really, like that's a really cool sunset of that so I can describe how the colors look for for those moments where because there's times when those jasmine moments are good. But you have to watch the energy level of everyone involved to see if they're receptive. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you watch the ebb and flow of the energy in your game. Right. 
Exactly. So what's the perfect number of uh, people to role play? Um, I like four, whether, whether it is three in a GM or uh, whether it's four people in a GMless game. I will take four players, uh, not counting myself as a GM, in a convention game, but I have stopped taking more than that. Uh, but yeah, um, because I don't want to – honestly, once, once you go over four, uh, it's hard to give enough adequate attention to everybody. Right. And it's I don't really I don't feel like managing that bullshit anymore. I want the people who are going to show up at the table to have a quality time. Yes. And that means and that means some people will either not I would not say miss out, but how just have to catch me another time because I'm pretty easily easy to get hold of. Sure. Uh, but yeah, so so that sort of thing. Occasionally, I've let a fifth person in, and that person has always been a ringer. Right. So they've always been like that. Not, not necessarily an alpha player, but the person I have set up in particular. For a purpose, so like they, I know, I know their deal. I got them, you know, yes. sort of thing. Sure. Uh, I had one guy, uh, my my friend Chris Handrahan, who runs uh, Endgame Oakland, would occasionally be my fifth player. He was a fifth player in one of my Unknown Armies games because he sometimes would have to run around the store and deal with stuff. Yes. Uh, I I intentionally made him a character who was panicky and could effectively stop time, <laughs> and, and when he did that, he disappeared. Right. So, uh, so I gave him the. The this is the power that you will accidentally use every time you have to walk away. Right, right. And that was that ended up being perfect because he walked. Yeah, I think at one point walked away for half an hour. Right. He came back. He was like, "What went on?" But he could do that in character yes, because he yeah, had no sure. idea what just happened. Yeah. Um, so that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, but yeah, for me, it's four players is a fantastic you know dynamic. Uh, I, I particularly love three though because that's a really nice amount of spotlight. And with odd number of players, you do not get the point where you have two factions that disagree of equal number. Yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah. That, that, yeah that's, a big, that's a big plus to have the odd number for sure. So how often do you role play and for how long? Uh, now it's going to be sporadic. Uh, the, the Sunday group uh, that I had uh, with Leonard Balsera is going to be sporadic uh, if it continues. And uh, right now I... We'll play every Wednesday, although I'm not going to uh, be playing uh, tomorrow, recording on Tuesday. Uh, other than that, whenever I can. I conventions quite a lot. Uh, I'm going to go play Northwest this weekend. I expect to be doing a lot of gaming then. And as far as how long, uh, four hours tends to be what I shoot for. Sometimes, sometimes it's three for like the online stuff, but I don't try to go any longer than four hours. Right. Do you find the online stuff is more intense? Because Sean uh, Hayworth... Um, from um, episode 23, was saying that he finds that because you can't get that cr- same crosstalk that you get in a regular in a regular game because it makes it really difficult for other people to be able to hear what's going on, that, that his online games seem to go a little shorter because, uh, but are more intense because people are so focused on, on hearing what's going on. As a GM, I try to kill crosstalk in general. Right. Because I, I think that's rude to people. Sure. Um. Like, even if it's in character, like, listen, I'm very big, like, this dude has spotlight, you know, pay attention so that you can react appropriately. Yes. Um, sure. So I, so because of that, I, I don't necessarily think it's more intense for that reason. I think you have to project a different energy. Right. And that energy might make it more intense because you have to project a little bit more. Than you would, I think, face to face because you have a lot of social 
uh, nonverbal cues you can use for communication, sure. and you don't have that if it's you know online play, uh, especially if it's just voice, you know, purely through voice. Sure. So I think for that reason, uh, there are times when it's definitely gotten more intense. Right. Sure. When it might have been more relaxed in person. Right. Okay, so changing tech completely, uh, should males play females? And, and you can take it either way, like as in people should try to play things which are different to themselves or, or whether people should be doing it at all? Uh, I, I don't see why not. Um, the, uh, I don't know, it just, uh, I, I have, I don't really see why that's a problem. One of the, the the couple of things come up in, in connection with it. Um, the first one is that uh, I've never really had a, a fe- I've never played for a female uh, had a female GM before, so mm-hmm. I can't really speak from uh, from experience. But one of the things about role playing is if you're going to take on a different role and try and uh, you know undertake a different persona, then you know you're exploring something about that character, and that's really one of the good things about role playing. But if you are going to if you're a male and you're going to role play a female. Can you get anything from that experience if you're, if you would, or that is, could you get more from the experience if your GM was female to give you better feedback on your, or react to you more appropriately as a female as opposed to a male? That is very contextual. Like there's, um, I mean, I've played with some female GMs and I've played various, uh, all sorts of crap. Um, the, the thing about, the thing about playing a woman is as much about the social constraints of and the social customs of a particular setting and time sure. as much as it is about biology. Sure. So, yeah. you know, if you're playing if you're playing a woman and, you know, you're doing something very contrary and like I am a female knight, that mm. that that says something about you and about the world. Uh, and that can be really interesting. Yes. And it and it might be that you're playing a very masculine theme, you know, uh, you know, woman knight. Right, like Right, so you're not so you're not necessarily playing, you know, any you're not really going to feminine personality tropes, but the world around you is reacting in a certain way, yes. and that can uh, that can be something as much as what as what what you portray is half of it. The other half is what is portrayed at you. Yes, uh, and I find that there's a the game called uh, Chronicle Feudalis by Jeremy Keller, who also did Tech Noir, who sort of does this interesting thing with this, which I think he calls backgrounds. Right, it, they're basically flags of. Here are things about my character that are interesting, but I don't want them to be important parts of the game. Like you might say, my background is I'm a female knight. And what you're saying is, and I don't want a game to be about how that's constantly challenged by men. Right. Let's, let's not make that part of the setting. Right. Um, although if you, and if you don't say that, you're implicitly saying, I totally want this to be about the fact that the patriarchy wants to put me down right. and I ain't going down. Sure. Um, so if a dude is playing a woman and being an asshole about it, yes. then then that's wrong, but it's not wrong because he's playing a woman. Right, sure. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah the, the transcends whatever, right. whatever they're playing, and, for sure. And the, and the trick, the problem ends up, is when they don't realize they're being an asshole. Yeah, sure. And that ends up being a really, really hard individual conversation. Yeah. Where it's like, it's should males play females? Yes. Maybe this guy shouldn't. Yeah, sure. You know? Or, or, or maybe this guy, you know, needs to talk with, you know, some people about how he's totally offending them. Mm. Uh, but it's, it's, I mean, that's akin to saying, you know, can a white person play, you know, play a black person? Also, you know, the other way around, you know, can a, you know, female play, play a dude, uh, you know, or, or whatnot. Uh, 
anybody who is basically disrespecting someone else at the table yeah, sure. by, by playing a horrible caricature. Yes. Uh, it, you know, yeah, that's, that's some, that's some cockfightery. <laughs> by the way, I think that, that is one of my favorite words on my blog. If you had not noticed that I really enjoy that word. <laughs> I hadn't. Uh, so, so do you think that there's genuine catharsis available from role playing then? I think that there is. I don't think that that's the only potential goal of role playing, and I don't sure. think it should always be the goal of it. But I think that you can find those moments of catharsis. I found that when I was playing a Jason Warning Stars Gray Ranks, I played at a convention, and I had this really passionate, really hard hitting uh, love story between me and another player at the table. And everyone was waiting for like so that moment of, of catharsis where we finally gave in and kissed. Right. And we didn't ever. <laughs> we were we we were so brutally like it didn't end in a kiss. It ended in basically murder suicide because it was oh, a really hard hard game. If you're oh. not familiar with Grey Ranks, it's the game about playing Polish freedom fighters in World War II in a losing battle. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, chill, uh, teenager Polish freedom fighters. Oh, so it's like like Red Dawn, World War II Poland style. Yeah, and it's like it comes from actual history. Right. There are these. There are these. Uh, the the uh, basically. The like Eagle Scouts and and the Girl Scout equivalent uh, doing uh, doing guerrilla tactics. Oh, nice! And so and so your teenagers growing up, and it's during the first battle, the first battle of Warsaw, where the people of Warsaw, the first Warsaw uprising, where they lose it. Right. They don't. It's the second Warsaw uprising where they're liberated. Right. Um, so it's uh, and so you're growing up and you're being teenagers and like being hormonal and shit. Right. In this, so that was like this really, really hard, brutal game where we afterwards we were all exhausted, yes. and and there was there was such a, I mean, even even that ending, even though we didn't we didn't give in to that thing that all of us, including us as players, wanted, right. uh, there was still a sense of catharsis that it was over and yes. that we had done this thing, and it was a really powerful experience. Yeah. I don't get that from most role playing games, right. and I'm okay with that. I'm not necessarily looking for that, but I did get that from this game. So yeah, I could totally say that 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 can exist. Right. So do you or should GMs fudge dice rolls? You know, so so I got that question, and I have not been able to answer that because from, from a designer's perspective, uh, fuck you if you do, I guess, is yep. kind of it's, it's a thing. Um, and a lot of games that push the GM into being in that space to need or want or feel compelled to fudge a die roll is not a good space to be in because it means that your game is the, the, the system is not providing you the feedback you want right. I would say the system's not interesting at least it's not interesting for you in that moment right. um, so if you're playing a game that's bullshit yes and if you're playing a good well designed game from your perspective no right. <laughs> I guess is the answer um but if you're playing a good, well-designed game from your perspective, then all the dice rolls should actually be feeding back something to you. And so, no, totally not. Yeah, uh, sure. or, or you can get around this by having a system that is entirely player-facing rolls. Right. Uh, where, like, uh, like the various Apocalypse World games, the GM never rolls dice. So there's nothing to fudge. And, man, are those games hard and brutal on the characters. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, because you never, you never... Part of the whole thing with fudging the rolls is... Um, you know, because I don't want to make this person or this player sad, or I don't want to kill that person's that person's fun off. Um, right. But at the same but, at the same time, it requires a 
and I was, I've mentioned this a couple of times, one of the things that, uh, that I say in my book, and I have a sort of section there for, for new, new game masters, particularly for game masters that haven't seen somebody else do it before, the first thing you should be trying to preserve is the fact you get people to come back next time, right? Like you, that situation where you, know, you get, your, you get your, your player and you, uh, your character and you, you, just, you get them together and then they sit down in front of the fire and the next thing they know they're, they're dead. Um, it doesn't inspire people to uh, inspire people to come back. And another no, thing, not so much. <laughs> and if they had their own car, they'd drive away. Just say, for example, sorry to bring up that yep. painful memory again. No, it's, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have to have some bourbon later for that. <laughs> and, uh, and and another thing is that um, you know you want to you want your players at least when they're starting out to to experience success. But one of the main problems with with this, the, the the decision to fudge or, or not to fudge a dice roll is that when you're starting out as a GM. You don't have those tools and those skills to make um, bad roles interesting and fun for the for the players. I've got a, a mechanic in my system that encourages people to get involved in their failure, and they get to fail in character. Like James Bond doesn't slip on a banana skin or or drop his to juggle his gun and then drop it. You know, something cool, some Emma Peel style character comes and is just a little bit more cool than him and kicks the gun out of their hand or something that allows them to fail but in character and doesn't re- remove any of that, the coolness that... Uh, right, that doesn't, like, for. kill their agency or anything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, there's there's that. There are systems and ethoses where the idea is to fail forward. Yes. Which is, which is not, you know, that sort of like, you know, if you bring up the unappeal thing, if she didn't exist in the fiction a moment ago, you have now introduced something interesting because of the failure. Yes. There's the, there's the various, you know, ethoses of success at cost versus success. The, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, yes, you, sure. you did totally, you know, shoot your gun. Yes. It is, but, you know, because it's now also empty and you're out of clips. So yes. now, now what, you know, the there's a tilt, you yes. know, you've got the success as a cost. Yes. Um, so any of those things that give you a, like, if just systemically give you a tool, uh, or you as a GM have a particular tool. And as a, as a, one of the guys who sort of is in the hippie indie design, I'm very big on system giving tools so that as a GM, I am free to interpret them and that yes. everyone sort of has a, and also it's, it's, it's like the system is much of a social contract as anything. Yes. So sure. every, if everyone understands that a, that failing a role, uh, means X or Y, then, uh, then I can, you know, I can sort of put that in the context. Yeah, that's right. You can but, decide whether to make the role at all, right? Like if, if you know what's at stake when you when you fail, you may choose not to make that role. Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if it's the other side of fudging is not necessarily just the social dynamic at the table, but also the story aesthetic. Yes. You may have that point of like, man, you should not have missed that thing because this would have been totally the moment for that being epic. Yes. Let's let's fudge it. And and you see some games that like including including fate. Yes. That do that by having a currency that allows you to in game fudge the rules with some sort of fictional tie in. Yes, that's a fair you know that's a fair part of the yes, game. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's almost always the way that people deal with the failures that make the game awesome, right? Like those interesting things that failures throw up that really you know really help to make a game cool. Because if you always succeeded, or you know if you go to a you know the supervillain's lair and they've got this. This, this weapon of mass destruction all lined up and you make a roll to sneak in you sneak in you grab the weapon of mass destruction you walk out again game over that's not interesting it's the dealing with adversity right right if you also have a game system where you once you fail you have a choice to do something about it yes 
the choice to leave it a failure becomes interesting as well. Yes. If you're like, you know what, I'm not going to spend my currency, I fail. You, that that has reintroduced ownership into the failure. Mm, absolutely, yeah, for sure. Uh, and although there, I mean, there are definitely games that don't have that, like the various Apocalypse World games, where it's you know it's a role; it will never be manipulated. It is a hard thing. Yes. Uh, but that that itself produces a very different feel. Like that's that's not a heroic game. That's a very dramatic game. Yes. And a lot of games that have. Uh, uh, Unfucking failure mechanics, I suppose, is the term I'll use. Right. Um, like the plot points and fate points, things like that, yes. are heroic games yes. because they're about you know they're about a hero choosing the moments in which they overcome adversity. Yes, for sure, for sure. So, what's the best and/or most inspiring role-playing film or TV show? It doesn't have to be about role-playing, but you know something that you watched and went, "Wow, that's really cool." I want to play a game where I incorporate that into it right now, or I want to be that character in that game because that looks awesome. So that changes with with like whatever I'm watching ends up being that. And lately, that has been Stargate SG One and Stargate Atlantis. Right. Like I'm very tempted to write Starfate to be like the like, the the idea for me would be, what if the universe of Stargate the you know all that stuff became public and you move the timeline by ten years? What does that world look like? That would be awesome. Like I every time I watch the show, I get inspired and usually make notes. Right. Uh, well, before that was watching three hundred. Right. Like I like and I like I want to make a game that is that battle and then I did so it was like uh, so so like every now and then it's like I I watch something and I'm po- and I just point at it I'm like that's my next game. Yeah. Right now it's it's it's. Stargate is one of the things that I keep watching because I I'm rewatching the entire series right. of of they're like somewhere like 300 episodes that I'm watching right now 201 season and 100 another right. <laughs> uh, so yeah so all of that stuff has just been like I've been consuming it yeah uh, rapidly right so people watch out for that in the future I guess rock on <laughs> neither confirm nor deny um yes exactly <laughs> as is as is the evil hat way that's right so who's your favorite villain and more importantly why are they yeah so a long time ago one of my favorite villains was from Final Fantasy 8 was uh Seifer who's like a villain in the very beginning of the of the uh, of the game okay. and then becomes a good guy. And the reason I really loved him was he was the first time I really saw up front. Like he, he had his villainous speech and his villainous speech was about how he was the hero and you were the villain and he was going to stop you. Right. And I'm like, yes, that, yes. um, uh, and so that there, uh, and also in final fantasy seven, uh, Sephiroth, because he became somewhat, sympathetic as you learn why he went batshit crazy right uh so those those right there are probably some of the two that i i go back to when i'm thinking about it um as far as like villains that i really really like yeah that ambiguity i think is is crucial for for a great villain i've sort of identified four different um villains and, and one of them is that sort of that lex luther superman and and the character that you described right there where the only reason that you know that superman is the hero is because it's told through their eyes uh, right. whereas if the story was told through lex luther's eyes you know they they would be the hero and that also ties a little bit back to what we were talking about where you've got the technocracy and you've got the tradition majors i think you'd be hard pressed to call in a fandy good in any way but 
that right. again may go towards this idea of you know because the you know, the great old ones or I forget exactly what they're called uh, in in that uh, mythos is that uh, they're totally unknowable. There's no way to to empathise or sympathise or right. you know, to get any sort of gr- grasp on what it is that they want. But but yeah, that that idea where you're only the good guys because it's your story is uh, the, I think is a really powerful idea. The the, the cackling madman and the Clearly, this guy is evil. Yes. Uh, don't interest me. I mean, in spite of the fact that I'm watching a lot of Stargate, where that is, that's the way the Goa'uld are set up, or they're totally evil. Right. Uh, and that's that's perfect for pulp. Right. That is perfect for pulp. But they are not my favorite villains. I mean, I was thinking like, I almost like the technocracy. Like, no, but they're the heroes. What are you talking about? They're right. not the villain. Um, but yeah, any time where you have you have the moral ambiguity, and yet. You can see the the way that the hero is taking the high road the villain isn't right is great yeah, like that, sure. that if, the, if if that's the difference between two characters like they both believe they're the hero, one of them is going to unsavory extremes yes. but still sees themselves as the hero. I love those villains right in, in episode twenty five I was talking to uh, to Hamish Cameron and his his favorite villain was Darth Vader and then then we got to to talking about Darth Vader, and I came to the realization, um, and maybe you can help me out with this: is I don't know why Darth Vader is the bad guy. Like, what is Darth? What makes Darth Vader the bad guy? It. So, and I, I, I could, I, I do love me some Darth Vader. So I will amend my answer to say also Darth Vader. Uh, <laughs> thank, thank you, Hamish. <laughs> Hamish is awesome. Uh, so, if you take this perspective. That the force is so okay. So you know, in D and D, things are good and evil alignment, and that's an absolute cosmic thing. Sure. Like it's not. There's no ambiguity. It's like you can do a magic spell that says the sky's good. Right. You know that that there's cosmic absolutism. Yes. The force is about cosmic absolutism as well. Okay. And so, Darth Vader is a villain because he is partaken in the evil side of cosmic absolutism. Okay. So he's only a villain because of the – basically, you are what you eat. Right. And that's the reason that he is a villain in that context. Uh, there was, there's, a, there's a retelling of Star Wars I would love to see, which is like the BSG-ing of Star Wars, right. where you start back with A New Hope. But they're freedom fighters. And you know what freedom fighters do? They kind of do acts of terrorism that are horrible. Yes. Absolutely. You know, like – the. What what civilian population have the rebels destroyed, even if, like, they didn't necessarily want to because it was also a prime military target at that moment? That's right. Yeah, it's like, kind of like, like that bit from, uh, from Clerks. Clerks isn't yeah, it Clerks yeah, exactly. Too? Yeah, it's, on, it's in Clerks. It's the classic uh, – uh, yeah, the, there are a whole bunch of contractors, and the, then the contractor chimes in and says every contractor knows what he's getting involved with or something like that. But, <laughs> but yeah, the, the sense of, of you know – the rebels blow up the Death Star, and we all cheer. Yes. But what are the other things that the rebels blew up? Yes. That that are like make you like, you know, actually, I kind of like the stability of the Empire. Yes. And and let's be honest here, having a whole bunch of psychic police may be not great. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so so yeah, I mean, there's sort of a sense of like, and the thing that I love about the Force, incidentally, is the dichotomy. Um, if you if you don't take it as good and evil, which you totally shouldn't take it at, but the brushstrokes of the movies take it as such. But it's the it's the difference between, uh, uh, like a 
not balance, but um, like, well, the dark side is about passion, uh, and the light side is about restraint. Right. And so you have all of these, like, just you know, you know like hermetic uh, psychics who are like, the light side is great. We must deny ourselves everything in order to be with the light side. Right. right. And you're like, and you see, like, you know, the dark side people do horrible things. Right. But at the same time, you can understand them better because they are making decisions that make sense. Yes. Like, I, I mean, the, one of the big, like, extended universe tropes, and I only know this from, like, reading Wikipedia, but <laughs> it's not, like, and, the, and the, like, the Wikipedia and stuff like that. Right. Uh, is that part of the dark side lure is the fact that uh, the dark side, if, if, like, if you love someone, that's a strength you can draw from. Right. Now, that's dark side strength, but, like, that's... That's actually kind of an interesting thing. Like, that's what makes the Force really fucking cool yes. is that I love you and that will make me go to the dark side. Yes. That's something fucking interesting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's that ambiguity again, right? Like, it's right. there are no absolutes and, and that's the, you know, that's you know, that's the best bit about uh, role-playing, at least for me. You, know, you get right. to play through those, play through some of those. Uh, right. Through some of those but, things. But then Star Wars has cosmic absolutism. Yes, yeah, for sure. So and that's that's why Darth Vader's a villain yes. because the Force says he's a villain. Yes, right. Yeah, there you go. Problem solved. So if you could become a character in a role playing game, what would be? And that doesn't mean like you can play whatever game you want and be whatever character. Just like all of a sudden, Ryan Macklin becomes uh, you know, Fox Mulder in a Project Twilight game. You know, you become something in some game. Oh man, I I still don't have a good answer to this. I I'm. I'm reminded of the fact that, uh, you know, renowned author Kenneth Height is actually a canonical NPC in Unknown Armies. Right. Um, so it's always like that's what your question reminded me of is the fact that, you know, uh, a, you know a good friend of mine and uh, awesome, awesome writer is actually an NPC in a, in a, in a book. Yeah. Um, but as far as, man, I don't have a good answer for that. I, people like to be ma- like the idea of being able to be magic. I, you know, if uh, if you change the system entirely, uh, so like the setting wise, uh, I'd probably be uh, like one of the children of the Gregory in Unknown Armies, because I find that, or not Unknown Armies, uh, in Nominee, right? Uh, because I find that entire like mythos and the way it sort of plays with 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 things really interesting, right? Uh, and and I've always been intrigued by the sense of of the angelic half breed, right? Something like that. I think I. I think that would be kind of cool to explore right. that space. Right. Also, that would be a horrible world to probably live in. So I think I'm happy I'm not actually that character. <laughs> so, do you have any dice superstitions? I don't understand dice superstitions, to be honest. I think mean, I see them. Yes. Um, but like for me, it's like that's a, that's stuff, and yes. I I do have. I guess if I have anything, it's I, I have a, a kit of dice that I've been using for the last four years or so for, for my game Myth Ender, right. which I think is packed up in another state, but if it's not, it's lost. Oh, yeah. uh, and, and when I couldn't find it, I was really bummed out. Right. Not like because that, because that particular thing has sort of has a sense of emotional weight because I've been using that stuff for four years right. i'm bummed that i've lost it i wouldn't say any have any superstition over it right. but i have an attachment to the like 200 some odd dice that are in that bag right all of which are used for my game right and have you um 
Have you experienced any weird dice superstitions? I can't say that I've experienced any weird ones. I've seen people like don't touch my dice, or yes. I, I think the, the ones the one that probably weirds me the most are the people who say I don't roll well, and I'm like I just I I don't understand. I really truly do not understand the mindset where someone says that. Yes, yeah. Like it's a, like I it I don't get it. I what I, when I see when I see that what I see is somebody who fixates on the times where the rolling is crap as yes. opposed to looking at everything. I, I, I see somebody who fixates on something weird. Yes, that that whole idea of um, you know this astrology, right? People only ever remember the hits, they don't remember the, the 99 misses. And somebody that gets into their head that they're bad at rolling dice um, will always fixate on those bad rolls that reinforces exactly. their, their, their idea. And another interesting um, thread that I've been able to pick up is all of the game designers that I've had on the on the show, none of them have dice superstitions. And I wonder if that's because if you're going to create a system, then you can't accept that there that there's any such thing as, as somebody who can roll bad or somebody who can enroll good. Because if you entertain that notion in any way, shape, or form, then it has to inform the decisions that you make when you're creating the game so that it's fair for everybody. I, there's that. I think that also might be... That if you're going to be a designer worth your salt, you're going to have to think critically. Yes. And so, uh, with at least with regards to the craft, so you're going to look at that and be like, well, uh, you know, I may feel like I have bad luck, but to be honest, I know how dice actually work, and I I don't need superstitions, you know, based on these. It's yeah, I, yeah. I guess it's yeah. I, I don't. I can't think of a designer that does, but I'm sure someone will chime in and be like, I'm a designer. And I have – I'm going to tell you how you're wrong. I'll see you can't see it because it's a podcast. I'm totally shaking my hands in the air as I'm saying that. So I imagine that person will also shake their hands in the air. They're shaking their hands, yeah, and everybody's looking yeah. like the weird, whereas you're doing it the privacy of your own home. Exactly. <laughs> so what's your role-playing elevator pitch, including your go-to example? Uh, man, I don't think – I can't remember a time when I've actually had to do that. Uh. I guess I would say think about um da 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 da. I'm gonna go have fun with my friends. It's probably what I would say to lead in. Right. Um, I don't know if I would actually attempt to explain the hobby in that moment. I would just attempt to sell that it's an experience that I enjoy and that it's a social one. Right. But if you're trying to convert somebody, like you just moved to a town and. you found that there was nobody around you that was into role playing, and you'd spoken with somebody at work over a couple of months, and then you felt it was time, finally, time to come out of the closet as a gamer and say, you know, this is what I like to do. Would you like to do it with me? See, I'm not that person. That's the that's the thing. I'm not the convert guy. Right. Um, the I, I'm also not the guy that hides in the closet about that. It's right. part of the effect of being a designer. Sure. Kind of you wear that uh, pretty well on, on at least I do uh, on my sleeve. Um, if I'm the guy that waits for someone to approach me about it, right? Uh, I, I guess if someone who were asked, um, I'd ask them if they understood improv, right? You know, and if they did, they'd be like, "It's like improv, sort of. It's fun, <laughs> um, uh, and otherwise, it's it'd be sort of like, uh, like basically like interactive. Uh, what is that called? Uh, where you're doing like a screen reading, right? 
I, I had I had this like a long time ago. But the idea of like you know you're doing a you were doing a screen reading except we're not doing it from a script. We're kind of doing it improv style and things like that. Um, with 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 if I was to do a specific game, I would probably be more tailored to that. Like if I wanted someone to play like you know fiasco, like so play this game. We all sit around and we talk uh, and we basically uh, describe you know to ourselves. We sort of play out like a Coen Brothers movie. Right. And we do that, and we're going to do that like while we're eating dinner, so it'll be kind of like a dinner party thing. Right, yeah, I, idea, yeah. I love selling the idea of certain games as dinner party games. Like right. a penny for my thoughts totally could be a dinner party game. Right. Fiasco could be a dinner party game. Yes. Um, and then as far as a specific moment, I, I don't know. I, I would – I think I, I might just leave it and see if they ask anything about that. I can't really think of a specific moment. I would just probably just paint things generally – to right. see where it goes. So, yeah, I have a useless answer for you. <laughs> <laughs> My next question was, what's been your success rate? But I have to say, if that is your pitch. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I just, I, I know enough people to where, yeah. uh, you know, where I basically, yeah, it doesn't come up. Or if it does come up, it's a very situational thing. Yes. So I'm just having a conversation with somebody. Like, I'm not having to pitch them. Like, someone like, sure. what do you do? Right. I, you know, design games. What sort of games? Right. And then I have to look them over like, are you the kind of person, are you asking that to be polite or are you actually interested? Like I'm having to do yeah. that, that gauge. Yes. And I think so it's actually interested. Then I sort of explain what it is I do, sort of explain what's yeah. going on. And yeah. so it's like, ah, that sounds like fun. So I'm like, all right, cool. Yes. But I, I'm very much a, I never hard sell. Yes. Uh, I've done that myself a lot more times than I, than I care to think about. Well, you have to go, okay. Does this person actually want to know, or, right, or not? And sometimes I just come around and say, "Do you do you really want to know?" Or, you know. or, or just asking me to be nice. And, and of course, half, half the time they lie to that too. But but, but then, it's like but then they bring it on themselves, and it's really, really too bad, right? And <laughs> but uh, but it's sort of like when you happen to say, "Hey, I'm a writer," and they say, "Have you written anything that I might have read?" Yes. And, and that's that. That's like the worst question to ever ask a writer. <laughs> it's like I don't. I mean that my. I think a couple of times I said, I don't know. I don't know who the fuck you are. Yeah. I don't know what you like. I, I may have been drunk during those times, but like, you know, occasionally. Sale. Yeah. I'm like, I'll buy I a whole back catalog, you forthright yeah. individual. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Only it worked like that. Um, but yeah, no, it's just, it's all situational stuff. Yeah. I think if anything, I've sold role players on playing different kind of games right. that I'm, that I have sold people who haven't been into the hobby on trying the hobby. Right, right. And so that I sort of, I pitch the particular experience uh, of my game. I would mean, have to do that a lot with my own game, like, uh, like with Mythender. My, my pitch for that is, do you want to stab Thor in the face? <laughs> that one has a pretty good success rate. That's right, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. But as far as general into the hobby, um, yeah, I can't think of a time where I've had to pitch to somebody. Right. Okay, so for all the marbles then, Ryan, totaling 100, you distribute those points between system, GM, and players based upon on relative importance. Okay, well, I'm going to have to give 50 to the players. Um, well, let's see. Uh, at this, um, yeah, 60 to the players really depends on how many players, because I would sort of, to each individual player, would get the same amount as the GM. Sure. Because everybody, so everyone needs to be an equal working part, uh, maybe a little bit more to the GM. So, okay, like 60 to all the players to divide up amongst yourselves. 
Some of you may play more than others if you're alpha. Yes. Uh, I'd give uh, 25 to the GM because a sense of enough mastery to get a, or to a facilitator of a GMless game, a sense of enough mastery of the moment to be able to portray a sense of confidence and a sense of consistency right. uh, is, you know, is sort of one of the things that you're trusting if you're a player or if you're you know, not a facilitator of a GMless game and are taking direction from someone else. And then 15 to the system because the system's important, but it's not the thing that should own the game. It's the thing that should inform the game. Right. That adds up to 100. Ladies and gentlemen, Ryan Macklin. Thank you very much. That's it for episode 30 of Penny Red. I think you'll agree that Ryan's episode was well worth the wait. On next week's show, I'm super excited to have Lillian Cohen Moore, with whom I'm finally going to get a chance to discuss Wraith. Until next week, don't forget to sign up for Big Bad Con and keep talking the walk. Mm-hmm.